songs from a padded envelope. My name is Steve, and I'm here with co-host Ben. Hello, Ben. Hi there, Steve. We're with Bobby Matador for the second of our two episodes with members of Anida. And Ben, despite their lifelong friendship and musical partnership, Bobby and previous guest John Colpitz could not be more different in the way they talk about their work. Uh, chalk and cheese, really, weren't they? Um, and both uh, fantastic conversations in their uniquely different ways. And there's um, and there's a big streak through the conversation with Bobby, which is about the kind of the push and the pull and the difference um, differences of approach within the band. And it's kind of it's summed up nicely by the the sort of two main protagonists, or well, in this instance, the two main protagonists within the band, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and when we were kind of setting up this conversation, well, you did the majority of the work setting up this conversation with um, with Bobby, and um, before we even had a chance to speak to him, we got a, we got a real sense of what the conversation was going to be like from the wealth of stuff that he sent over to us. I mean, he gave us. So, I mean, he was so invested in in this conversation before we even started having it. It was really encouraging, wasn't it? It was fantastic. It was, you know, kind of, because uh, the first connection went, came through through John um, and then he kind of pushed it onto Bobby um, as, a po- as a potential idea. And then this first missive came back from Bobby and he totally got where we're coming from the show and with the show, didn't he? It really hit him in exactly the same way that the kind of idea of the, the you know, ex- exploration around the demo process had landed with us. And I think, fortunately, it landed with him just at the right moment, given the kind of sort of purple patch of creativity that he has found himself in over the last couple of years. Yeah, and 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 was also really up for talking about it and articulating it, and in a way that was, um, I mean, just... He, he's he's just so driven by his ideas and so aware of his ideas and the intent behind them and where he wants to go to with them and which is which is impressive enough in in and of itself but then to be in a band with musicians that share that with him and so they are they're, they're able to explore their music in the way that they do i found it massively inspiring and actually um really want to get in a room and make music with them (laughs) (laughs) well we put a conversation quite early in the episode in the conversation with bobby around around trust and relationships and how that kind of um is the kind of bedrock for creativity that it it enables you to to go out there and be adventurous in the creation Mm. of music and he really he really lent into that quite heavily and it kept coming coming back through the cycle of the conversation touching on that again and the kind of um the way the passion that he spoke with and the um deep appreciation of his relationship with kid mm. and with john and then the relationship that had spiraled out from that with the whole of the band and the kind of concept the way that they kind of they push each other um push themselves through their creativity it's just it was and like you say the passion the passion of it and some sometimes the way that he describes them this kind of he said uh, they, we've always had a minimalist and a maximalist streak as a band yeah which i just i just loved that and it, it, the fact that he kind of relished the idea of the push and pull and the and the concept of tension 
and the sort of balance between agitation and reflection. It's just, it's fantastic. Yeah, and all done with just real gusto and and humour and a, and a love a love for the opportunities that they're able to carve out for themselves as a band and for themselves as musicians. Um, yeah, it's really really enjoyable. Um, yeah, it was a it was an absolute treat to to, to speak to him. So our thanks to Bobby for coming on the show uh, and for being such an, an enthusiastic and, and giving guest and, and, and giving his time to us. We have a couple more episodes to share ahead of taking a summer break, so keep an ear out for those. And on that note, shall we go over to our conversation with Bobby Matador on episode 58 of Songs from a Padded Envelope. Uh, I'm Bobby Matador from Oneida, and uh, this song is called Solid. Well, look, thanks for coming on the podcast, Bobby. So we usually ask folks to send over a biography or some info ahead of the recording, and you've given us a wealth of insight to, to speak about, which we're excited to get into. But can we just kick things off with a bit of a whistle-stop tour of your musical upbringing? That's okay. <laughs> sure. I mean, you ask about musical upbringing, so you're you're clearly asking about childhood piano lessons. Um, of course. But... <laughs> I'm not satisfied unless we get at least one story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Of, of which there were several. They they didn't necessarily take, but um, I actually I actually mentioned that because uh, I think the experience of sitting at a piano is is a, actually a, a useful image for where sound and music have kind of taken me. So like whether you're a little kid or an adult, you sit at a piano, an acoustic piano, and you play and you've got your hands kind of out, right? And to, to your left and to your right, and you're playing and the music is kind of happening in a stereo field. It's coming out to your left and to your right. And there's lows and highs and they're positioned. And that, um, I loved playing piano when I was a kid. And part of it was sitting in that kind of three-dimensional tactile relationship with the sound coming out of it so the the lessons maybe didn't take so well i found out quickly that um i'm not really uh that into learning sight reading and musical notation and um but never really stopped playing ever um and so you know yeah lots of uh lots of teenage band years <laughs> of trying to figure out um how to how to make music continue to sort of fold around me um and honestly like playing with other people for the first time which for me would have been grade seven grade eight so um you know ages 12 13 starting to play you know cover bands with friends um should i stay or should i go that one's really easy when you're 13 to figure <laughs> out right <laughs> Um, but they're just that, I mean, then this is whatever, this is the, this is the long version, right? It, but, but, but all about sound and, 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 and being surrounded by music has just been, um, you know, that's, that's my personal disability and medicine for the disability, I guess. Uh, so yeah, um, went off to high school for us, you know, I went off at age 15, um, to a new high school. That's where I met, uh, the man we all know and love is Kid Millions, John Colpitz, and he and I started playing together um, at age 16 um, in some other people's band. 
uh you know they were it was sort of a classic high school again mostly cover band uh they kind of pulled the two of us in to add add to what they were already doing and that was fun and then we ended up creating a project and by the time we were in our our final year of high school um we actually made a made a record a tape together um you know tascam four track recording uh writing songs so that's you know that's the roots of the collaboration that eventually became oneida so i'm 48 now so i guess i'm looking at um you know, 30 plus years of playing music collaboratively <laughs> with Kid. Um, wow. Yeah. That's amazing. Uh, yeah. So along the way, you know, Oneida started in, in 1997. Um, and uh, we, I've played in People at the North also with Kid as a duo and with other people. And I have other projects and bands. My um, life partner, Erica, and I have a, a band called Nurse and Soldier. I have another active project called New Pope right now, which is, um, you know, it's its own thing. It's a it's a duo slash trio with a, a couple other amazing musicians, and um, you know, we've managed to sustain a life of recording and performing in all of these different guises. And um, you know, when uh, when sort of well-meaning relatives who are not particularly invested in the music world ask like so what kind of music do you play uh i figure the umbrella term is i just tell them i just play unpopular music of all kinds and, uh, <laughs> actually, that's sort of a litmus test if they're interested and they want to know more they can ask at that point or we can all agree to laugh and you know have a drink and change the subject. <laughs> <laughs> wow. It's it's a bit of a tough ask to ask you to take an overview of your relationship with Kid, given that it spans kind of 30 years. But but how do you kind of see the development of that, particularly in terms of the kind of the trust that's needed in a creative relationship, how that sort of evolved throughout the course of your, your work together? Yeah, I mean, that's... um. You're right. It's a it's it's a well, it's a tough question to answer with any sort of eloquence and accuracy. Um, and I'll just start with the observation that when we go on tour as Oneida, invariably, I would say every other night, someone will ask, are you two brothers? Um, and we're not brothers, genetically speaking, but we've I think we've spent so much time together, working together, being together that that it's you know we've sort of done that done that thing where mannerisms and intentions and presentation begin to to blend and blur so um we're not the same person for sure but as as you mentioned the the trust is um you know is really really intense for us and it's allowed us to be you know on a really obvious level or i think musically obvious having a long history together and a great amount of creative and interpersonal trust allows for successful improvisation, right? Like that, that seems like that would follow rationally and logically. And it's true for us. And improvisation has always been a big part of the music that we've made together in really any context, even, you know, high school cover bands um, playing Santana. See, there's another, another nugget for you right there. Revealed. <laughs> history. Um <laughs> But beyond that, I another thing, and, and this I think maybe 
connects more precisely to where we'll be headed in this conversation or where I anticipate we're headed is um, that kind of trust makes it easier to, in isolation, pursue ideas, right? If I'm, if I have an idea or I, I you know, I, I can just only speak for myself, but I think this is a mutual experience. Like if I have an idea or something is happening with me creatively, I'm working on a song, I'm working on a sound or just a, a concept. I'm able to pursue it in a pretty unfettered way because I am not worried about presenting it to my band, right? To my bandmates. It's not my band. I mean, it's my band as much as it's everyone's band who's, who's in it. Um, and this is true for everyone. I mean, the, you know, the, the newcomer newcomers in Oneida <laughs> Shaheen, you know, has only been playing with us since 2006, you know, <laughs> like it's, it's been 16 years, right? So, um, so, so that trust is really shared across everyone, um, and it makes it much easier thinking about the context and topic of demos, right? To be like, hey, I tried this thing. It's maybe it's incomplete, or it's just a terrible take. But I got something that I care about, or oh my god, my voice sounds so dumb, <laughs> but. But I'm, I'm approaching something, right, that maybe we can all do together. Um, trust enables that kind of compositional practice and share, the sharing that follows to be, you know, nothing's effortless, but it's as close to effortless as any kind of collaborative work can be. And that's that I'm, you know, I'm grateful for and um, I'm acutely aware of um, how fortunate I am and we are to have that kind of collective relationship after all these years. I feel like we're we're like some science experiment where the, you know, the the researcher comes back into the lab and is like, damn, that that one's still growing. That's amazing. You know. <laughs> the fact that I mean, there is a yeah, it's incredibly fortunate, isn't it? It's incredibly fortunate to have found an ally like you have with John and John has with you, and for there to be the um for you to be on the same wavelength and then uh to be able to collaborate in the way that you do and do and develop your collaboration in the way that you do and then to be able to create a culture for other people to come in and be part of that that's some serious aligning of the stars there for, for that to take place isn't it that's a that's really unique and, and like you say very very fortunate how much just sticking with the early stuff for a little bit how much did having your ideas taken seriously by um um people around you like you had your history teacher play drums on some recordings right and yeah in that, grade, not in not just sort of saying that must have been really important that early support for not just go on lads you can do it but actually no i'm gonna support this and encourage this in a meaningful way that must have been quite important yeah, I think it is. And it's, it's funny, you know, I, 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 um, I included that story in the, in, in the kind of retrospective reflection, um, that I, I put together. And, and that's, uh, the idea that someone who was teaching me history in grade seven at age, I guess, 12 at that point, um, would, like you said, not only, not only be sort of gently or patronizingly encouraging as you might expect from any well-meaning adult in that role. Um, but yeah, to, to play drums with our 
terrible middle school band, but also to open up his home and his home studio and and record us and and teach us about recording. And, you know, I, I was like, he had a Hannah Hammond M3 organ in his house, which was, you know, not a B3, as I'm sure someone sitting at home is like, that's not the same. It's not. <laughs> um, but but, you know, like a big, massive wood generator of of, of like power and drone and it's like the really this is in your home you can do this and then you can spool up a reel of tape and set up these microphones that you know this is my first exposure to like real looking recording equipment um so part of what was valuable was as 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 you you know surmise the 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 being taken seriously and being treated as somebody with meaningful goals and meaningful work. Um, but also the vision that this is a thing that people can do that is different from what we consume through popular public media. Right. And that was, you know, that was my first inkling that this is, a real thing that is available to everyone. And so then as sort of DIY and indie culture and, 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 you know, the history of punk started to open up for me in, in the, the years that followed, like that's all part of the same thing to me as my history teacher's home studio. And he was really, he was like a folk rock country guy. He had a band and um, they played a kind of a bluegrass country folk vibe right like his tastes weren't necessarily the same as mine but he could play and and he could make music and also be you know teaching and working with kids and having you know a very real creative life and that i think that modeling was maybe as as important as the encouragement piece yeah what was his name eric garrison Shout out to, yeah, Eric, shout Garrison. to Eric Harrison. Come on. Yeah. Come on the show, Eric. <laughs> um, I'd lo- I love the fact that you, you know, you talked about DIY and that you can draw a line back through your history to that point and kind of that's the kind of sort of kickoff point for where it begins. Can you talk a little bit more about what took you into DIY culture in particular? Good question. Um I think, so this is something I've had to reflect on, not, um, this doesn't come out of a, a, a set ambition or a consciously directed path. Um, but I have learned about myself that I do my best and most interesting and most sustainable creative work when I'm acting instinctively. So perhaps, perhaps I have a concept or an idea or a jumping off point. Um, but I, I like to pursue things and then work later to edit, to judge, to analyze, to shape. It's not like, and then it all comes out and it's perfect. Right. But, but to like have the idea, act on the idea and then reflect on it and work from there. Um, so I think th- the, appeal of DIY culture and where like, like an indie aesthetic. And again, just to place this given my age, I'm really talking about mid to late eighties into the early nineties is, is where kind of this process is happening in my head. 
uh, uh, you know, chronologically. Um, seeing and hearing really compelling music that was pushing against expectations of, you know, what should it sound like or how should it be made or who should know about it. Um, those learning that those didn't have to matter meant to me, I think it's okay to pursue what you want to pursue. Um, so my musical tastes have actually always been really varied. It isn't like, ah, finally, you know, I heard Mud Honey or Pavement or Guided by Voices and was like, that's the answer. Those are bands that I love and have, you know, been a part of my life. But um, process matters just as much. And so like, you know, Sun Ra and the orchestra are, for me are like, that's, that's foundation music for me for the same reason, right? Create your world you know, follow your vision and yeah, hopefully people come to you, <laughs> but if not, you're still, you know, it, it still has validity in the act. Um, and then you find out if you're actually communicating with people, right? Cause music hopefully communicates, you know, uh, you know, hopefully it isn't a completely solipsistic, you know, <laughs> process, right? It's like you actually want it to land, but you can you can find that out, right? You can find out if there's an audience. So there's 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 such a lot of intent in that, and that's not something like you said that that happens instantly in the process, or that you come to straight away. There's a there's experience that needs to happen that that uh, that early those early formative experiences that need to happen in order for you to sort of have those moments of realization. Where, can you identify some of the milestones? that sort of serve to break down convention for you and make it easier to get out of your own way. And whether that's a performative thing or something to do with like not being bothered about what microphones you use. <laughs> or, sure, yeah. sure, 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 sure. Um, yeah. So, all right. So some milestones, um, the Cecil Taylor album, silent tongues, uh, which is a solo recording from the early mid seventies, I think it's from 1974. I was getting interested in, in jazz, you know, in my high school years, um, found out that there were certain parts of jazz that I loved and certain parts of jazz that left me totally ice cold. Um, and I, I'm not sure what the first Cecil Taylor recording I heard was, but I was like, wow, you know, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta listen to this. And I bought that record. I bought silent tongues and I was at home in my parents' house. Um, obviously where I still lived, uh, this, you know, was, I don't know, maybe fifth age, 15, 16, somewhere around there. I, I could be off, but somewhere in that part of my life, um, and put on that record and sat on my bed in my bedroom and, turned it up really loud and was taken to a completely to like a set of different places as I listened to it because it was compelling in its freedom and compelling in the ferocity and passion that was in the playing um and it was abundantly clear to my at that point pretty untutored ear that there was this logic in play that was not related to the kinds of musical logic that I knew. And all of those things were happening at the same time. And 
I just sat and listened and turned over the record and listened to the other side and just felt different. Um, so that's like, that's a moment where I think I internalized this idea that there's, there's freedom. And I knew I had sort of, sort of started dipping my toes into like free jazz, right? Quote unquote free jazz, but that like you can explore things freely and with power and with passion and you can also build your own logic and language through that. And that's what I've found in Cecil Taylor's music, which has been like since since then super important to me. And that doesn't mean I come home every day and listen to a Cecil Taylor record. Right. But it's like his music and his approach to music and culture and dance and his ability. I don't know how familiar you are with Cecil Taylor, but like seeing him live before he passed, right? Like even as, as a, an old dude coming out and like dance was a, always a part of what he did. And I, I know nothing about dance and I, but, but the idea that like he was going to present his vision, his way with this passion and power has just been, so meaningful to me and his vocabulary is totally different from my vocabulary right he's like a black man who grew up like half a century before me in a new york jazz world and you know fought like a motherfucker with with people in that world right like like totally different people with different perspectives and different musical and life vocabularies but still that combination really informed who i am so that would be that would be one thing that i would one story I would tell, you know, from back in the day that really shaped me and, and, and who I am and, and where I go with that stuff. Um, that's a great answer. <laughs> that's a really great... <laughs> uh, Bobby, that's, it is a fantastic answer. I'm wondering you, uh, in the, in the, the stuff you sent over to us, you said with, with an eye that you kind of pretty much pursued every option for making music from composition to improvisation to stuff like the bleak strategies and i'm wondering how um how easy it was for you to kind of push yourselves by using all these different different means and methods for 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 making music together um you know, I, I think by the time Oneida, you're talking about, I think I was talking what I sent over about specifically about Oneida and Oneida's willingness to try all these different approaches. Yeah, um, and yeah. I, you can extrapolate that out to, to me as an individual, but I think it's important to think about Oneida as a collection of people uh -huh, for sure, um, who all have, have had, you know, I don't know, similar experiences or at least, um, at least relevant experiences to, to my own in terms of finding our way and believing in, in again, like a DIY aesthetic and also in like the power of learning as you go. Um, so there are a few things we've done along the way in terms of group decision-making that I look back on and I am just so powerfully relieved that we made the choices we made. Um, one of them was just to figure out how to communicate <laughs> with each other, you know, like verbally. Uh, and it's not like, and we've had a perfectly smooth ride communicating, you know, but like to, to prioritize the idea of um, say the shit you need to say when you need to say it as best you can and shut your mouth and try and listen as best you can. Um, that's not an answer to your question. But the other, the other thing I reflect back on that I think addresses your question better is, um, 
the very first Oneida recording um, was made by a kid and another founding member of the band, the two of them. Um, so that would be, would be crazy. Pat Sullivan. Um, the two of them created, did a bunch of four track recording when we all moved to Brooklyn together uh, in 96. Um, and then they, they invited Jane and me who we had all played together in various contexts to sort of join and help, help finish that recording and then we all went on tour together and then that was like the birth of oneida and we came out of that with a um we were lucky enough to have a record label a small record label at the time turnbuckle records in new york um was willing to release those first recordings and asked us to make another record and they were this was 1997 now and they were actually willing to give us a small advance, right? This was in the days when you could, you know, give a band some money and the band could use that money to go to a studio and make a record. And, um, and we just said, you know, we all are coming out of this place of DIY music making. What if we take this money and we find ourselves a space and we buy some mics and we buy a, a tape deck, you know, a, re a real deck of some point, which for us at the time was a, a half inch eight track deck um and we kind of pursue this avenue and that that seemed like a really logical choice to us at the time um we were not sort of making a demo to take to a big label and get a ton of money like that was just never going to happen because because of the kind of music we were making and also plenty of bands had had what we would consider reasonable success pursuing a diy path so we invested the money in um, building our own, you know, very, very modest studio space. And then that gave us the, all the time and opportunity to experiment with everything that we wanted to experiment with. Um, and because we made that decision and we took that path, you know, not thinking we were somehow superior and being happy to work in studios. We've worked in plenty of studios and loved it. Um, and loved working with like really competent, capable engineers for sure. That has a, that's amazing. Um, but just kind of starting with that concept of like, well, let's learn how to make real records as best we can. And again, like the concept that the process will have value that just sets your brain in motion in an exploratory fashion. So then, you know, often what's happened is people that we're not affiliated with have reflected back to us on our music or our processes with things that we weren't intending or weren't familiar with. Like, oh my God, you guys are really exploring classic minimalism. And we're like, oh, <laughs> I should learn more about that. And then it's like, you go learn and you're like, totally. Yeah, like, yes, absolutely. And now I understand it better and could do it better, um, right? Uh, you know, or or whatever. But, but that kind of um, just being willing to experiment and putting ourselves in a position to do that. And also... Um, trying to live a life where we were not, we have pretty much all remained employed in one way or another to pay our bills. And we've had day jobs for most of our lives. And that has varied. And sometimes those jobs have been satisfying and meaningful and sometimes not so much. Um, but being able to meet your basic financial needs through a job unrelated to your music. Um, if you have <laughs> the willingness to sort of live two work lives at once, <laughs> one of which, 
one of which gets you money. <laughs> um, uh, that that willingness, you know, again, like just created an environment of freedom and exploration. So it was not so hard to be like, well, what about this? What about, hey, you guys, I have this idea. Or what if we each write one classic rock song and start an album that way? And that album became the not so obliquely titled come on everybody let's rock you know <laughs> like, like like homework assignment everybody write a classic rock knowing that like we can't write a classic rock song it's not actually gonna happen but but that's a project right so um and i you know i the ego is gonna rise up here and say and i think it turns out we're actually pretty good at what we do and so that you know we've certainly gotten better but but the idea that um you know, we take a crack at something and, and we've always been, this may be surprising. We've always been pretty good, harsh self editors. Like there's so much that doesn't get released or get pursued any further. <laughs> I know there may be, I may be setting myself up for a punchline here. <laughs> <laughs> um, but okay. So I guess those would be the ingredients. A slightly frivolous question at this point because you brought up writing classic rock songs. But have you looked at the your um, the Oneida Essentials playlist on Apple Music, and what do you think of it? I think on Apple Music, no, I don't know that I have. Okay, is that, is that like an algorithmically generated playlist? I know Kid just recently put a playlist together, but I don't think it's that. Okay, well, a Apple Music do they they do them from for. for they have them for most bands. I don't know if people submit them or not, but then there'll be there'll be like fifteen. There's I think there's I think there's I can tell you exactly. Is it it's, sort of like recommended if you like kind of playlist? Like or is it actually Oneida songs? They're Sorry. all they're all they're all Oneida songs. This is this is a, a and really they're all brilliant. Well, I was I was uh, here we go Oneida Essentials. All right, and then there's a little biog of you, and there's uh, eleven songs, Treasure Plane Geometry. Uh, the wood, wooded world reckoning, preteen weaponry, pure light invasion. I haven't got my glasses on. Sorry, XXY, Happy New Year, and no, a couple of others. It was nice to run to this morning. I was running. Wow, yeah, that's, a, that's, a, that's an eclectic playlist. It um, is very eclectic. Yeah, it yeah, is eclectic. Wow, I wonder who put that together. If it was like an algorithm that put that together, that's a that's like a kind of a ballad ballad heavy <laughs> i mean what, yeah ballad, yeah, ballad invited commas yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, those are, that's cool those are great songs i wouldn't have ever 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 compiled those songs that way um but i think it's really cool i'm glad i asked that question though i, yeah, I, I yeah, wasn't too, i wasn't I, sure about I'm it into that. Um, i'm gonna take that down right away um, <laughs> <laughs> Everyone an instant classic if you're listening at home. Everyone. <laughs> uh, moving on from, from your running, Steve, and your, your thing, you, you were running to Dead Sea last time, weren't you? So probably running to Anida is probably a relief, I think, isn't it? It was. There was some nice acoustic guitar at some point, which <laughs> there wasn't in the Dead Sea uh, Apple Essentials playlist. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, there's Bobby. a good... There's a good, uh, a good story about the time that oneida played with the dead sea like together oh, please, oh, yeah, tell us, at tell the same us. time um so w when all tomorrow's parties was a going concern for festivals um we did a number of of those festivals at which we um kind of brought our 
studio collaborative concept to the ATP festivals um, in which we performed an extended improvisation, usually eight to 10 hours of nonstop improvisation. And people who performed at the festivals would join us um, in this improvisation, which we would sort of schedule in advance. So it wasn't like extreme chaos. And I think we were at Minehead. Uh, I can't remember. Maybe it was the Godspeed You Black Emperor curated All Tomorrow's Parties Festival. It could could have that wrong. It might have been that. I know Portishead did one that we played at. But one of the ones in the UK, Dead Sea, were performing at. Um, or maybe it was in the, in the US. But I think it was one of the UK ones. Um, and a couple of them joined us on stage and worked actively against kind of what was happening on stage in one of the coolest <laughs> no i mean it was great it was it was like yeah it was, um, it was like okay we're coming in and so i'm i'm like gesturing physically now which is not so helpful for an audio recording but um <laughs> you know it was like they're coming in at this angle into something it's almost like this sort of a sphere of of sound had been created and had been going on and they were they were like going to slice a chunk of it off and force it to go off into this elliptical other orbit. And it was such a cool, inspirational experience. It was like the rhythms all had to change and like rub against each other. It was, it was like, it was such a good reminder of what it means to play music with other people, right? That you have to do something together and that everybody's like voice and vision has to be involved. It was awesome. Yeah, we, we were very, very lucky to have him come on the show, to have Bruce come on the show. And he was uh, an incredible man. And um, there's a there's a beautiful little documentary that is, I think his daughter made about him. Yeah. So like a half hour documentary, which is a stunning watch. And it kind of, yeah, but the way the way he carries himself is super impressive he doesn't even describe himself as a musician it's just a noise he calls himself a noise maker doesn't he yeah and um just yeah yeah sure it's like cecil taylor yeah yeah (laughs) that's a perfect example of somebody making music that does have freedom and does have its own logic right and it's not it's not logic that has to conform to anyone else's logic but it's like dedicated it's a dedicated thing. It's so inspirational. Yeah, yeah and really, really he's is. absolutely embedded in the idea of connections and communities and kind of spreading spreading stuff out. You know, you know, feed feed it on. Yeah, yes, I saw some of your uh, show at the ATP. It was the Port- Portishead one, and uh, yeah, I did. I did come and see some of it. Not the not the full the full show <laughs> i sort of wished i'd stumbled into the like bit with you had that. anything better to do that <laughs> yeah uh, yeah i was stuck stuck to the carpet it was it's very sticky carpet, <laughs> as I remember. Um, uh, well i was just thinking when you were um talking about the early days of the band and coming together and then going off on tour um, I'm quite, we, we, we've talked to people from around the world and different communities that are able to support or um, uh, support people's musical um, journeys, if you like. I'm just wondering about um, being in the US and being able to tour and tour extensively and, and create and become part of a network that's quite well established, especially around DIY music. How helpful was that? to you when you were starting because you said we just came together and then we went off on tour yeah 
Um, so the, the, the very short answer is, is it's amazing or was, um, an important qualifier is different when you're young than when you're old, um, depending on how you do it, uh, and depending on how you've built your life. Um, and then the actual Oneida specific answer is, um, involves what happened when kid and I moved to New York together in 1996 and Oneida began, but we also were working, we had to work. And, um, I went off and worked for a jazz record label called Black Saint and Soul Note, same company, this Italian label. Um, I worked at their U.S. office, which was based at JF Kennedy Airport, but that's another story. And um, Kid went and got himself an internship at the Knitting Factory um, downtown. And um, for anyone who's listening who doesn't know the history of the Knitting Factory, the Knitting Factory is like one of the most important incubators, um, a club that's one of the most important incubators for, for you know, really new music, new jazz um, in, in the 90s is, is when we were there. We were there in 96, 97. Um, and he got himself an internship and then they quickly gave him a whole lot more work and then they quickly made him book tours for their artists because they started a record label and then they had him booking the Knitting Factory. And it's like, bang, 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 bang. Um, so he knew a million people, right? A million experimental, unpopular bands who were coming in because the cool thing about the Knit one of the many cool things was they had their main space and, you know, jazz legends would be playing there one night. Um, I did see Cecil Taylor there. Um, just keeping the through line alive, guys. Um, jazz legends and rock legends and experimental music legends would be playing there, but they also had these other spaces. Um, they had a little theater downstairs. So this is the original, uh, not the, not the original Houston street location. This is, it moved to Tribeca. Um, on Leonard Street, and they had uh, a little, little space called the Alternate Theater, in which all kinds of, you know, very, very un unpopular, and I'm using that word with deep love, and I apply it to myself, right? Um, music would play, and, and kids booking all these spaces, and he's meeting all these bands who are sending tapes, right? Literally, it's high, it's 1996, 97, like people are still sending tape with a letter. Um, and he's booking them and people are coming in from Madison, Wisconsin and from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And they're getting to play at this amazing venue in a tiny, really homey, lovely space to eight people like we all did all the time. Um, but because of that, when he booked, Kid booked our first tour around the country and we went out for six weeks um, and then took two weeks off and then two more weeks. So basically two months around the US on our first tour, um, based largely just on bands that he knew and reaching back out and being like, hey, my band is coming through town. You know, here's our tape. <laughs> um, and like that created lifelong and career-long friendships and relationships. And so, you know, some of them terrible shows and, oh, it didn't work out, whatever. But it doesn't matter when you're in like, well, it matters when you're in, you know, Oklahoma City and you're trying to drive to Jacksonville and you get there, you drive 16 hours overnight and it's like the show's canceled, right? That sucked. Um, but for the most part, like you're meeting people and and it was Memphis to Jacksonville, by the way, my bad. Um, a long time ago. Uh, 
you're meeting people and you're playing with people and you're playing these little venues to nobody. And then it's like the next time you come back, like everyone in that scene comes to the show and you meet them and you know them and like it builds and builds and builds. Now that is the 1997, 98, 99, 2000 version of kind of growing into a scene. Um, I don't have what I would consider meaningful insight into what that experience is like for new bands now. Um, but I know it exists. I mean, I have friends who kind of work through that scene or have pre, you know, pre COVID have, I think right now everybody's trying to find a whole new MO obviously. I mean, I don't have a strong insight into that for sure. Even less insight. Um, but you know, that culture, that culture is going to last because it's, um, you know, again, I'm going to say this in love. It's like cockroach culture, right? You can't stamp out like a DIY community. If you can, can communicate across distances, you can set up shows, you know? So like, it's only gotten easier in terms of communication. Now I've lived in Boston now for, I'm the one member of Oneida who doesn't live in New York. I live in Boston. I've lived here for a little more than 15 years. 16 or 17 years. And I have seen, you know, the ability to stage DIY events and shows really wax and wane and wax and wane. You know, this is, there are places where it's hard to do that, where it's hard to find space or whatever, but you, you, you're never going to get rid of the culture entirely. And amen to that. Yeah, seriously. Yeah. Please. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I feel like we could stay in that part of the conversation for a long time, Bobby, but we should probably move on and look at the talk about the new record. Um, you've said that the, that the new record's success is about simple songs that are coming from complicated places. Can you elaborate a little bit more on that? I will elaborate a little bit more <laughs> on that <laughs> because all of all of all of my complications are not are not available <laughs> um, but uh yeah i think it's um i mentioned this in some of the stuff that i sent to you guys uh starting about two or three years ago basically so timeline wise but you know before the pandemic kind of landed on us all and and put people in their in their homes um i was experiencing a lot of uh pretty intense turmoil and as with many people who make music or movies or art or who write you know sometimes that kind of finds its way into uh productivity i just will leave it at so i came back from an Oneida tour in Europe in 2019 and just found myself like writing songs and they weren't even necessarily like Oneida songs there. I didn't think of them that way. They just were coming out. And I, I made a quick demo recordings of four of them over the course of maybe three or four days after this tour. And it was just like, bang, 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 bang. And it, a lot of them were based on things that I had been writing. I'd been writing to myself in the van on that tour um, but this is sort of a common, this is sort of how I am and how I, how I roll. And it wasn't like, and this will be an album or these will be, it was just like, eh, you just gotta, you know, you gotta listen when the, when the things are, are, are happening. So, um, 
that stuff was coming out and and then i found that it just kind of kept coming and it was maybe no longer so related to being on tour or being on the road or exactly like what was happening in my life in my head it was just the you know the 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 it's a, it's a classic metaphor right the the faucet turns on the the water's on and you just as long as the water's coming out as long as the music is happening or the writing is happening, you just have to do it. You have to work, 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 work and get it all out. And I just assumed that as would normally be the case out of all of this would come a few nuggets of useful stuff. And then it just turned into this litany of songs and touching all the way back to our conversation about trust, right? I started to think of this as like, all right, well, I'm actually going to record demo versions of everything that I think is, of you know, I feel like, wow, I have a, a, a set of finished ideas. And I began recording this stuff in just in the home studio here in the house, which is pretty, pretty low, low fi, low key. Um, and this stuff started to build up. And I realized, well, a lot of this, I think, could be Oneida songs, but we have not in a long time done a process where it's like, hey, everyone, here's a bunch of songs. Let's turn them into Oneida, right? Which was going to have to happen. It wasn't like I wrote out, you know, it wasn't like I, and then this will be this guy's part and this will be this guy's part. Not at all. It was about like getting a vibe in a song. And then, you know, there were certainly things that I listened to and I was like, Whew, no, gone forever. Um, but then it was sort of like, well, I bet the band could do something interesting with this. I bet as a band, we could write this song, right? Here's the, this is now an idea that has become sound and we can, take that idea in sound and we could write a song or make a song out of it. Um, and they were so, a lot of them were so simple, not, not all of them. Um, but I found myself gravitating back to the ones that were extremely simple. Um, and we've always had, Oneida has always had a kind of minimalist streak, also a maximalist streak. And they sort of fight a lot. Um, there's often, you know, like one pollutes the other, so we're never um, we're never sort of dignified in our approach to a particular aesthetic or concept. It's always like, whoops, no, psych. Um, <laughs> but uh, it just the directness of minimal structures really felt powerful and appropriate as we as a group started to work on these songs. Um, and so we have spent a lot of time playing together and we have gone all kinds of places in improvisation and free music and pushing ourselves to do things that we didn't think sounded like music and kind of pushed our pushed ourselves towards our own logic and our own vocabularies and what came out in this playing was a really really streamlined version of those vocabularies that i think has a directness and power that like underneath there's a ton of churn <laughs> and some of that churn is like you hear it in voice and words and some of it you hear it in to me when i listen to it i'm like yeah like it would never be in doubt to me that this was an oneida song even though it's not uh it's not immediately clear what elements would identify it that way um last summer no two summers ago i don't know no it would have been 2019 all right so back to the summer of 2019 um i played uh with with erica my partner and a couple friends um 
in a we just put together a tribute set for a party which was the first modern lovers album um you know roadrunner and she cracked and uh girlfriend and pablo picasso and uh, uh someone i care about and we got um we sang a bunch of the songs and we had a couple friends you know picked a couple people to come and sing some of the songs and we played the whole album um and you know i can't discount the effect of playing that music on kind of recognizing the power of simplicity that to me is one of the great rock music punk rock albums ever and i mean i love jonathan richmond kind of all over the place but like i think of jonathan richmond as a musician as a separate entity from that modern lovers album like it's him and it has to be him but it's like it's a complete powerful mood experience and like it's it's a perfect record especially because it's not perfect because it has some dumb crap on it um which you know all perfect records have to have like the saxophone on raw power um but you know every, everything's got beauty <laughs> mark right it's, i'll edit that out <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> over um so so, like i i want to acknowledge that like and i because so i hear i listen i listen to the record but it's funny because like no one else in oneida was doing that and we took these demos and we made we made them as oneida and it's like it's funny so it's it's almost like a game of telephone there i the rhythms and the instrumentation aren't the same on the demos as like what we ended up with but you still get that power so obviously there's like a through line that happens somehow that's not compositionally translated or transmitted it's it's just experiential and it's the power of sitting together with people that i've known for you know great portions of my life and spent great portions of my life with working on this music so i guess that wasn't a short explanation it was a long one it's it's a great explanation and and i like the there does seem to be this kind of narrative that you as a band and individually, you can kind of hold these opposites um, at the same time, that they can kind of coexist happily with each other. I think you sort of described the, their sort of tension between restraint and abandon as, as a kind of natural piece of who you are, and that it's very yeah. much not a considered position. Right. I like, yeah, not a considered position. And 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 the tension is always there. I would say it, it doesn't always... Um, doesn't always work right and that's where that that's where that self-editing piece comes in and being able to be like okay i can understand where this idea or this sound or this thing came from it's not quite landing right like let's move on right so you got to be willing to abandon things um to let to let them go and drift away uh and i'll i'll spare you any explanation of, of those failures um but yeah, I mean, I, I I think it's it's important to be able to sit with um, and enjoy unresolved things. You know, I mean, that's what dissonance is, right? And dissonance sounds fucking great to me. And it's just it's hearing the sound of something unresolved. Um, and that's, you know, that's like, I don't know, that looked at analytically you know, that fits us and life, right? It's not tidy. <laughs> so maybe that's, but it's not like that's putting the cart before the horse, you know? Um, it's just what sounds good and feels good. 
is this often this unresolved push and pull and this mess and this sense of like, yeah, like I'll sit in this and it's kind of right. I'm, I'm, I'm hearing what you're saying and, and thinking a lot about the uh, development of the, the, of the, of the music and the musical ideas. And, and, and that's sort of what we're talking about. But you, you, you mentioned writing in the van. And so I'm wondering how that, Pro, the, the, the all of what you were just describing, how the development of a of words for a song fits into that. It, fi- it feels like that might be harder to achieve. How do you know when your lyrics are done? <laughs> uh, that's an interesting question. Um, I write a lot of words, like a lot. Um, and I don't even think of them necessarily as songs. And then, uh, you know, I carry notebooks, I fill them up and I try not to think too much about what I'm doing or writing or judge it. I, and then sometimes things will kind of go, they'll fit or they'll sit right and I'll find myself returning to it. And then I'll say, okay, what, what is this? Um, and if it feels like a song, I'll push it and pursue it and see what it feels like and sounds like. Um, Sometimes that comes after the music. Sometimes it comes before music and there's no rhyme or reason to that. Um, As far as how do you know when it's done um, with this current set of demos and this current album, um, that question was kind of answered during the recording of the demos, right? Which was sort of a, compositional project on its own i would have this set of lyrics it would usually be a lot more than i wanted or they'd be messier than i wanted but they would inspire a sound or there'd be a sound in my head so then i'd try and play and while i was still playing i was like oh that's the sound or that's the beat or that's the thing i would record it and then it would be like all right all right there it is and then i'd have the song and it would be accidentally structured so then i would kind of say well okay so how does the how does this set of lyrics map onto the way this came out accidentally? Um, and often that helped hone things down um, and, and helped create a kind of precision and direction that I think moved toward impact. Um, and then those things got translated into the band and the band recording. Um, so there was an opportunity to be like, well, what if we hung here a little longer, you know, or, you know, we don't necessarily need that. What if this kind of moved right here instead? So, um, you know, it's not like, and then it was definite. I don't have a, um, it's not, uh, it's not like they all come out perfectly. On the other hand, there were a couple of songs that have made it all the way to the album where it was just like, there it was. It was just like, this is the thing. And it came out pretty whole. Um, and I can look back, right. I can look back through, I'm, I'm like looking off screen. I'm, I always have something with me. I, I looked back through a couple of my notebooks uh, today before we started chatting and realized that like, yeah, actually like, oh yeah, there's a song that just like came out start to finish. And that's exactly how I recorded it. And, and, and that one, I actually was like, trying then to play guitar along to and sing and figure it out. But, but that's a, you know, that's just a one, that's an anomaly. Usually it's like a lot of words and then trying to get the idea for the sound down and then being like, all right, how are these things going to map together? And then if there's something that really like can't go, 
or it needs more, I, I will work on it. It's not like um, there's no purity of intent. There seems to be a real simplicity and directness, and I mean that as a compliment, with the lyrics that sort of dovetails really neatly into the feel of the of the of the songs, the kind of general, uh, I don't know, upbeat vibe. You, you talked about listening to a lot of Wedding Present and a lot of Wire, and you talked <laughs> about the, the 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 Modern Lovers album as well. I kind of yeah, I can see the. Um, that the lyrics just kind of they kind of strike home, don't they? And they kind of there's uh, listening to to the songs again last night. They kind of there's fragments of them have, that have stayed clearly in my head. That's kind of you know it feels like a like um, there's a definite pop, a kind of pop hit within that within the, the the sort of the feel of the music, the direction of it. Yeah, well, you know, it's that's why we named the album Success. It's clearly a hit. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah no it's it's nice it's it's actually it's it's really helpful to hear you say that you know we're we're recording this at a time when um i haven't got a lot of distance from these songs and i find that after a couple of years i'll look back and hear hear things in a different way or or you know there's a whatever it's perspective or new dimensions um and you know i'm certainly not at that place with the music i have the same um, feel about them that they're I think they're direct and I think that that works toward impact um, but it's really hard to tell uh, you know for me at this point so that's kind of like thank you that's a data point <laughs> we'll put that in the marketing materials <laughs> sign this <laughs> <laughs> well we're, um, we're we're heading towards the hour mark so it feels like it might be a nice uh, opportunity to just um, get into the evolution of the song that people are going to hear at the end of the show um could you talk to us a little bit about solid yeah all right so um i i'm i'm glad that we're going to talk about this song because it's one where i think some of the most i, I don't know interesting changes or, or interesting is the right word maybe the most obviously available um impact of what happens when a band takes a demo and works with it like in, in terms of in terms of this particular uh album right like <laughs> solid started as one thing and ended as very much another thing musically um but i think it actually it actually helped uh helped the the concept of the song really gel um you know it it, it um it started that song <laughs> all right here we go you ready, ready. <laughs> you want to know yeah, we're ready. Well, go. <laughs> all right so i wrote i began writing that song sitting in the, the um the ruins of this old uh forest tower like a fire tower in the woods i mean i don't know if you know what a fire tower is it's from like 100 years ago when there weren't a lot of roads in the woods out here they'd build these towers and somebody would go up there and look around and see if there's any smoke and any fire so um i was up at the top of this hill in the woods out in western new england and i knew there was a tower up there um but i hadn't been up there since i was a kid when it had been actually like a tower, but falling down. And I finally found this overgrown ruins. And I, 
I was like <laughs> sitting there and I always have, you know, I'm always like, if I'm out hiking or walking or whatever, I'll, I'll, I'll take a break and do some writing. I did some writing and I was, I was, there were these steel cables, these really old steel cables that were all kind of tangled up and gnarled and, and sort of rusted and overgrown that had connected these beams. And I was just writing. I don't know if anything from what I wrote, like ended up in the song or in the lyrics. Right. But this is the Genesis. Um, about the experience of um, what happens to structures as they age, right? And then I usually find out when I'm writing about something concrete that actually I'm writing about something behind what's concrete. Um, and so it became a song about a person. <laughs> um and I, you know, I'm not gonna, uh, I'm not gonna, like I said, I'm not gonna give every piece of every layer of where things come from for me. Um, but it's a song of real admiration, but also a song of like, I don't know if paranoia or anxiety is the right word, um, but about uh, like how things fall apart and how do you know when they are, or when they aren't, because sometimes you know, you're just experiencing compromise, structural compromise. <laughs> um, <laughs> so the song came from this place of like agitation and reflection. So there we go. There's that tension, right? The, there's that, that like that messiness um, of agitation and reflection and, and, you know, human structure and natural decay um, and stuff just started kind of coming out and coming out and coming out. And then I found that I was thinking about it differently. I wasn't thinking about like this thing anymore. I was thinking about a person and my relationship, you know, to that person and what the two sides would look like. Um, and so the words were first. And then, uh, in terms of the recording of the demo, I knew what I wanted it to sound like. And I thought I would, I would go ahead and, and um, steal a beat, which I did um, from, geez, I think that one is, is actually a, like, a, I think that might be La Dusseldorf. Yeah. That's a, that's a, that's a, a La Dusseldorf beat. Um, and if I'd prepared better, I could tell you the song, but maybe that's a good homework assignment. Um <laughs> because <laughs> i recorded it a, a while ago um but i knew exactly what i wanted like you know the guitars to do and 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 sound like and to have this kind of uh sense of like clanging like clanging and moving fast at the same time um so then that's the there's the there's the okay i've got to get this sound down and i get the sound down and then I'm trying to use the structure of how that sound came out as like, okay, does this work as the skeleton for these words? Because I had the melody in my head at that point. And it was like, oh, yeah, 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 this works. This is great. Um, and so sang, made a couple of little changes. Um, and then, you know... I didn't want the structure of how it was sung to quite make sense um, because it would fit the song. The form of the song had to reflect the, 
the concept of the song for me, which is to say very straightforward and simple, but not quite built like the right way <laughs> or no longer, no longer sustaining that way. So there's, there's a couple of little choices that I made with the lyrics along the way to, to, to alter phrasing, but you know, not a ton of sort of chin strokingly conscious, um, alteration at that point it was just like get it out and then let it sit typically i'll let things sit for a while and then be like does this does this need anything and you know usually the answer is yes but probably i shouldn't add much because it's going to go you know it's going to have a life of its own at some point so um so that one sat uh for a little while and became part of a really big dump of demo recordings that, um, you know, I, I passed on to the band in a couple of a couple of stages and was like, you know, hey, you guys, here's a bunch of stuff, some of which is like, you know, totally not Oneida appropriate, some of which I think we can probably turn into something. And then a few of which are like, oh, yeah, definitely. Um, and, uh, you know, it was sort of like, hey, you guys, let's listen and see what songs strike us. And um that one was not like an instant immediate like oh my god we got to do that one or that's an oneida song it doesn't really quite go there and then somebody pitched it someone was like let's try you know when next time we get together let's try this one and it just became a completely different beast with the power of a band and you know kid applying a totally different rhythmic concept to it with this sort of rolling tumbling um thunderous kind of vibe and then it became like these really nausea inducing guitars in a way that was so cool from shaheen and jane like it's sort of like yeah it's like normal rock and like but not quite right it doesn't doesn't sound good and that was perfect right and like i could never have done those things and i could never have necessarily well, i mean i could have envisioned them we can all envision anything but it was like to take this tightly wound agitated um thing that that also had this meditative side to it and to turn that into this kind of shambling rolling thundering but still like i don't know unstable like it still sounds so unstable but in ways that i could never ever ever have um you know directed which i never would i mean our band doesn't work that way um you know, we, we each contribute and we accept the collective contribution. And so I am totally thrilled with how it sounded uh, and ended up. And one of the cool things is you have this long, long twin guitar um, back end, you know, it's like this whole new architecture on the back end um, that it's, I just adore listening to it. Right. It's like, I'm listening to these bandmates of mine, play like motherfuckers and there's so much detail (laughs) in it right it isn't just a there's plenty of um i don't know what the i don't know if expressionism is the right word i'm not like there's plenty of like blah you know get it all out but there's also so much like detail and and movement in it it's it's really cool and it's like somehow i'm like that's exactly what i was thinking you know (laughs) (laughs) so I just so cool to be in a band where, you know, once again, back to the trust. It's like, I'm going to give you my song like the way I wrote it, but I don't want it to be my song. 
right? Like it, it has to be ours if it's going to be ours. And it's like, yeah, this is how a band becomes ours, like us. Um, so super, super successful, right? Success, woohoo, success. Um, that, what, how, how fantastic. I mean, that, that's a perfect point to stop right then <laughs> to get to segue into the song. <laughs> <laughs> there's such a brilliant description of that process. And there's, yeah. th- th- I guess that we could probably talk for another hour, but we'll let, we'll let you go. Um, thank you so much, Bobby. Oh, my pleasure. Utterly fascinating have, like... to talk to you. Um, yeah. Thank you, Bobby. Could you just tee up the song for us that people are going to hear now? Uh, yeah, you're going to hear solid by Oneida from the album success out on joyful noise. And, um, you know, thanks. Uh, thanks for bearing with me, uh, talking my way through things that I don't fully understand. This is solid. Thank you, Bobby. Yeah, thanks, Bobby. Songs from a Padded Envelope is presented, produced and edited by Steve Swindon and Ben Clay 
Music is by state-sponsored Jukebox. Artwork is by Matt Canning. Songs from a Padded Envelope is a Hidden Hive production. (laughs) 